The following podcast is a production of Commercial Investment Real Estate Magazine, the official publication of CCIM Institute. For more on the latest trends, best practices, and continuing education in all areas of the industry, visit our website at ccim.com and sign up for our education e-newsletter. Welcome to another episode of Commercial Investment Real Estate Podcast. I'm Nicholas Leiter, Senior Content Editor of the magazine. In this episode, I spoke with Susie Jones-Walker, CCIM, President and Broker of Commercial Executives Real Estate Services in Las Vegas, and Senior Instructor with CCIM Institute. In a market upended by COVID-19, she discusses the challenges faced by industry professionals in lease negotiations and the importance of communication between tenant and landlord. She also shares creative solutions for troubled assets, including adaptive reuse, and details key leasing issues in these projects. Today, I'm joined by Susie Jones-Walker, CCIM, out of Las Vegas. Susie, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, Nick, thank you for having me, and hi, everybody. And now, uh, the topic that we can't avoid, um, considering the, the sheer amount of disruption caused by covid um, the tenant-landlord relationship can be a lot more complicated these days. In, in a general sense, what are the pandemic's two or three biggest impacts on leases and lease negotiations? Well, I think the biggest problem that we've seen is that in many cases, it's the perception that the tenant's going to be having problems and or the landlord. And so many people start in an adversarial position because of those preconceived notions And in many cases, people have avoided talking to each other. They're afraid of what they're going to hear. So they don't pick up the phone and call and ask and start the discussion. Yeah, mentioning kind of the tendency to avoid these conversations. um, You know, what what can commercial real estate professionals do to, uh, you know, to let their clients know that that communication is a good thing? Well, and realistically, I think the first thing that we should do as professionals is reach out to landlords and reach out to either our tenants that we've worked with or other tenants that are within the industry that you specialize in and communicate with them on the best practices of working with the landlord. The first one being use a third party because you still want to have that good long-term relationship with your landlord and the tenant, depending on you know, which side of the fence that you're on. And so that third party, if people are going to get frustrated or feel aggressive in any way, let them feel aggressive towards us so that it doesn't hurt that long-term relationship. Now, what advice would you have for commercial real estate professionals in playing the role of mediator in a situation like this? As far as advising the other professionals in our field, uh, you know, I think that the importance is to understand the lease and understand the terms. And you need to have a goal right up front. You know, it's funny in negotiations for CCIM, we talk about knowing your botna. What is your alternative? What is that best alternative that you have if this negotiation doesn't go well? And if you know what that is up front, you can actually frame that negotiation so that there is some control as to where it's going and also recognize when you've gotten what you need. So you stop. And, and yeah, and, and um, kind of penciling out those goals or kind of um, figuring out, you know, what is good enough. Um, 
do, do you collaborate with the client and kind of figuring out, you know, what is acceptable, what isn't, or what is your role in that, in that negotiation? Well, and just to give you an example, let's say that you represent a tenant in an office building and the landlord and the tenant through all of this lockdown and these difficulties haven't spoken. There's been some letters or some emails going back and forth, but nobody's picked up the phone. And I think in most cases, it's because nobody wants to hear something bad. And so if they just don't talk to them, it's not going to hit, right? And so I sit down with the tenants up front and I say, well, let's talk about your lease. Let's talk about your business. Where are you at? Do you need just a couple of months of relief? Uh, do you need to exit the building? What is the position that your company is in now? And if we could renegotiate your lease, what would be the best of all worlds? In other words, what is the minimum that you want? But what is your perfect panacea? And is it a case where, um, where you know, tenants are afraid to have any type of conversation where they think that, um, you know, any communication is, is bad communication from their viewpoint? <laughs> you know, that's funny that you would ask that. I think that ten tenants and landlords alike feel that, you know, some landlords have been aggressive right up in front and they've called their tenants and told them, I know that you have uh, potential issues. I want to talk to you about this. I've hired somebody to come in, help you find the money that the government may have available for you and help you find a way to work with us. Now, there's less landlords doing that than the landlords that tell their property manager, as long as the rents are on time, I don't want to talk to them because I know that if I pick up the phone and call me, they're going to ask for, you know, some sort of abatement or they're going to ask for a favor. So if we don't talk to them, maybe we'll just get through this because you've got to remember in this particular disruption, remember it was only supposed to be for two to four weeks. It wasn't supposed to be for 18 months and nobody expected that. Yeah. And I can see, um, you know, just in, in personal relationships where, you know, if you think something's not going to be a long-term deal and you, you don't talk for two weeks, three weeks, not a big deal. But if things kind of extend and now you haven't heard from a landlord or a tenant in three, four months, you know, that that's, I think, where, um, where both parties can kind of take the silence a different way. And I think so, too, because I'll tell you, Nick, when I when I train my agents and when I train my students, I talk to them about the fact that, you know, time kills all deals. Now, a good negotiation tactic can be allowing some time in between. But in relationships, and which is exactly what a landlord has with a tenant, that time can really kill not only the lease and the good tenancy that they have going on in the business, but also that long-term relationship. And so that communication, I believe, is truly key. And I think that a phone call is a great way to start. Some people, if they are a little bit passive aggressive or they're going to be aggressive in their negotiation, maybe a letter or calling up a part person like myself and saying, Susie, call my landlord and set an appointment. And then you and I are going to meet in between and I'm going to tell you what I want. I think that's a very strong framework to start this negotiation. Yeah. And, and you mentioned just kind of the um, there seems to be a tendency to view the tenant landlord relationship as adversarial. Um, and it, it sounds like these 
these outreach phone calls are a way to kind of take the edge off that and make it a little bit more collaborative, even if it is still, you know, there is some inherent tension in that relationship. I think so, too. You know, a a win-win scenario when you're in a tenant-landlord position is the best you can get into. However, yeah, in many cases, that landlord-tenant position has been adversarial from the beginning. And so now, all of a sudden, you might be two, three, five years, you might be 15 years into a lease where you have not been the easiest tenant or the easiest landlord to work with. And now all of a sudden you've got a position where you all really need to work together to get through this. And in some cases, that's where the tenants have just taken the position. I haven't heard from you. So guess what? I'm leaving. You know, isn't, isn't that the biggest decision, right? Because not only am I not paying, but I'm leaving the building and I'm not even going to tell you I'm leaving. Come and find me. And we've seen some of that. You recently debuted a course in the CCM Ward Center called Surviving Volatile Markets, Mitigating Lease Risk. When it comes to renegotiating leases, what are some first steps for the commercial real estate professional? I think the very first step, again, is to sit with the client and read the lease. You need to know exactly what the terms and the conditions of the lease are. And then once you understand the lease, you need to go to the market and you need to see what is the condition of the market. What are the market values right now? Because depending on the type of property that it is, and in the case study that's within that course that I wrote for the Ward Center, it's an industrial building that had had a long-term industrial tenant in this building, and now they find they need to get out. And when their broker went to the market to get the comps, they found out that their value that they were paying, their contract rent, was substantially under market. So now all of a sudden that negotiation was much different than you might think because there was upside that was in there. And one of the things that we talk about is a key fee. And a key fee is what would a landlord be willing to pay you as a tenant to get out of there so that they can release the property to possibly a better tenant and very possibly a tenant that will pay more money Because the higher the rent, the higher the net operating income, the higher the NOI, the higher the value of the building. So it becomes one of those positions where if the tenant's goal is really to get out of the space, because in this market disruption, they just have excess excess space on their hands, they can actually create a great win-win scenario for the landlord to get their building back. Gotcha. So uh, it sounds like... um... Part of, of success in a volatile market is, is being creative and is just also being aware of, of how many tools there are to find solutions to these problems. Well, and it, it's funny because most people think it's black and it's white. I just, I can't pay my rent or I need to get out or I need somebody to sublease this. But, you know, my experience has taught me is that most tenants... And most landlords, it isn't that black and white. You know, it's about the dollars and the cents that go through the values of the leases. What are the leasehold values? Are they positive or negative? It's really using those CCIM tools that CCIM has taught all of us since 1967, right? And there are, you know, this is a cyclical market. 
And this is not the first, and it certainly won't be the last time that we've gone through this kind of market disruption. And we know for a fact that the tools that we have in learning how to analyze the numbers of those leases is truly the success of helping tenants and landlord mitigate when they do get in these problems. As far as the ongoing situation with the COVID-19 pandemic, what issues are tenants and landlords facing that maybe they weren't facing in July 2020 or even October 2020? (laughs) You know, it's really interesting. You can't believe everything you read. You know, uh, everything we read during the lockdown was that nobody's going to want office space. Everybody's going to work from home. And uh, nobody's going to go shopping at the mall anymore. We're all going to buy our shoes and our hairspray and our evening gowns off of Amazon. Well, I think first we have to understand that the public, the U.S. public, does not want to do that. Many people want to return to the office. Maybe they won't return in the same way that they did before. Maybe there's more space to spread them out. And maybe there isn't more space to spread them out. We found that companies feel that their employees are more productive when they're in the office than when they're working from home, especially when you're in a service-based business, say like CCIM as, or myself being in commercial real estate. Then the next thing you have to look at is that people, the biggest problem that we've had with retail is the supply chain. And I don't think we realized the disruption that was going to happen with the supply chain that we have. Um, Many of the retail malls were already struggling long before this particular disruption hit with the pandemic. And so their stores were closing down Sears and Penny's and, you know, those are legendary. Uh, Macy's had already announced the different stores that they would be closing. But what this did do was create an opportunity um, with Amazon when they started looking at these regional malls and saying, wait a minute, we've got the transportation corridors we need. We've got the um, demographics that we need. Let's start going to these mall owners and let's make a deal with them. Let's do some of our last mile locations here at the regional mall and have this make sense and actually start doing some of the redevelopment of the malls themselves. And Amazon got into a marriage, if you will, with the Simon Group on many of the malls that they had across America. And you're starting to see those last miles pop right back up. So the thing about real estate that a lot of people don't realize is that the very type of real estate that we have is cyclical. Warehouses change, the ceiling heights change, the access to um, uh, load levelers on the roll-up doors, all of that has changed over the years. And it's the same with retail. Remember, before we had the regional malls, everybody was in the downtown corridor, and then all of a sudden the freeways came and They went around the cities and the downtown retail started dying. So this is just another way that America is remaking itself. Mm -hmm. And when you're approaching, um, you know, obviously every deal is different. But when 
When looking at using a mall, for instance, as um, turning that into more of a last mile fulfillment role for uh, for e-commerce, what um, what are the major considerations looking at that lease negotiation? On that particular lease negotiation, there's three big ones. First off, most people don't realize in regional malls, typically the big anchors, you know, the Macy's, the Sears, the Nordstrom's, Saks Fifth Avenue, typically those locations are individually owned. And then you've got all the retail tenants in between. And those, you'll have one major owner in the center, and then you'll have some minors that go around. Well, then they have CCNRs, conditions and restrictions, that say what you can and can't do with that building. So the first thing you have to do is get the buy-in of all the owners, including the other stakeholders, which are the operating tenants, to say, hey, that Macy's store, it's okay. Instead of selling soft goods, it's okay if now all of a sudden you're a warehouse. That's a completely different use in the center. The next thing is, is you've got to get the buy-in from the municipalities because it's a different zoning. One is retail, one is industrial. The other thing that happens if, if you get either conditional use permits and or zone changes, that may trigger a reassessment as far as the tax assessor goes. And so one of the stakeholders, when you start doing this type of change of a, uh, a regional mall, is that the city and municipality itself may receive less in the way of taxes with this new use that's going on because industrial buildings typically have lower taxes for the same amount of square footage than a retail would. And then of course, depending on the city that you're in and the state, there may or may not be sales tax paid on that e-commerce product. And so the municipalities and the states may receive a lot less income because of it. So it's it's really, it's not as simple as saying e-commerce wants to take this 150, 200,000 square feet. No, it's, it's, it, it takes time. And I think that's the big thing people have to realize. It's not going to happen overnight. It takes time because you need to create a synergy and or a plan for redeveloping the entire mall. Maybe you're going to put multifamily in and maybe you're going to take out most of the retail and just put restaurants in and some sort of experiential entertainment. Yeah. And it sounds like, um, like having such a, uh, an unprecedented situation like COVID, um, putting pressure on tenants in a situation like this, it, it kind of almost forces them to kind of be creative and look at, um, you know, look at, at possible tenants that are outside the normal retail sphere, if that's correct. Well, and you're exactly right. I mean, change is hard. I don't care if you are changing the color of nail polish that you're wearing. Well, me, not you. Or if you're going to go down and change your zoning and the uses within your mall or your office project that you own, that change is hard because what we know, that status quo that consistency is what our lenders want when we're making our payments. It's what the other tenants want in there because what they know is what they're comfortable with. And um, as far as obviously, <laughs> it's hard to predict the future. And, and uh, if, if we've learned anything from COVID, it's that lesson. Um, but, you know, as far as lasting effects of COVID on leasing, do you see contracts as 
across spheres? Are they going to become shorter or will there will there be more clauses in the language to deal with um, pandemics and similar situations? Well, it's interesting. If I believed everything that I read on the internet, which comes in at me on a daily basis, they tell me that tenants are going to start forcing force majeure, that they want to be able to walk away if there's another pandemic. Well, you know, there's a lot of creative clauses coming out that I see that are being uh, proposed by tenants into some of my landlord's leases. And my landlords have refused them. They've said, you know, I really appreciate this problem, but disruptions are typically short term. And I can't gear my entire mall around short term. And with that being said, neither will my lender allow that because my lender wants long term consistency. And so I think that right now there is a lot of knee jerk, knee jerk reaction. But you know, a good tenant wants long-term consistency in their space too. They don't want the landlord to be able to throw them out if there's a pandemic, especially if they feel they have, you know, a class A location and a real winner for them over time. The other thing that I think we might see is I think that landlords and tenants I think landlords are going to take a harder look at the financial condition of those tenants on an ongoing basis. Instead of looking at it the day that you lease that space from me for a 10-year lease, they're going to start requiring that financials come in and have them be, you know, if not audited, at least, you know, full years. And they're going to look at them each year because if their tenants getting weak, they want to know it right up front. Because one thing that we found out is that so many of, say, the restaurants, which after the first four weeks or so, really did a tremendous turnaround with becoming essential services and doing takeout and things like that all over the country. But the, the average tenant had virtually, you know, 30 to 45 days reserves maximum in their bank accounts to be able to keep their business going. And so that disruption of four to six, eight weeks put them under. And so I think that you will find that a good business and a good operator will have much more in reserves. And I think the landlords may start uh, verifying it and requiring it. I think the lenders are going to. Naturally, I would assume the tenants will be a little bit hesitant to do so to provide such information, but um, you know, what would you advise them as far as, as the positives for sharing such information? You know, it's interesting. The last huge disruption we had like this was the Great Recession, right, of 09. And in that particular case, we used to tell the tenants, you really want to check out the financials of your landlord because you don't want to get in there and put, you know, half a million, million dollars into your facility and find out the landlord is losing the property in foreclosure. Well, that same premise still works in reverse. And you just have to explain to the tenants why the landlords are going to be checking that. Interesting enough, you know, most leases require that the tenants sign an estoppel agreement and or give financials on an annual basis. However, 
many times the landlords haven't followed through because that lease administration, that's a big job. Even if you're a small mom and pop and you've got four or five or eight tenants, it's a lot to constantly require these things and still lead your own life if that isn't the only business that you're in. And so for landlords, I think it's going to be a cottage industry we're going to see out there. They may or may not want to have additional employees that really drill into the lease administration. But I've noticed that there's quite a few new companies coming up and lease administrators have a tendency of being either property managers or accountants because they're so diligent, right? And they think like a cash flow model. They go from A to B to C. And I think the landlords are going to find some real value in that now. Now, going back to the idea of an adversarial relationship between the tenant and landlord, it seems like understanding the financial health of the other side requires a bit of healthy skepticism um, that this type of due, due diligence could make a working relationship even stronger. Well, exactly. If you're going to have problems, don't you want to know it up front and help somebody avoid having that problem? Because landlords are in a long-term relationship. And frankly, this annual review is what banks do to the landlord if they're borrowing money. And frankly, the majority of real estate does have leverage on it. And so the landlords have been doing that with the banks for years. It's just a little bit of an extension that goes out. And frankly, I think that the lenders, to protect their interests, are going to start requiring that the landlords do uh, supervise their tenants more stringently than they have done in the last few years. You know, because when things are rising, you're not as concerned as when the seas get rough and the boat starts to tip, right? Now, we've discussed retail, office, and multifamily. What do you see as the long-lasting or even permanent changes to lease negotiations that will result from COVID-19? I think we're just starting to see the ramification on actually several market sectors, one of them being in medical. You know, the medical industry as a whole, and people don't realize this, hospitals, physicians, for almost a year, we're told you can't do standard medical. We want that hospital available for COVID patients. And so because of that, unless you're a respiratory therapist, uh, neurologists, you know, some of these other specialists, your standard physicians, standard surgeons, they were told to stand down and they couldn't work, right? Well, they still have leases and they still have landlords. And if they're not seeing patients, they're not billing insurance. And if they're not billing insurance, they don't have residual payments coming in. And I think the, the next big gap that we're going to see is coming from the medical side. I see it um, just in some of our practice with the medical office buildings that we're doing on the dental side, because typically those dentists that work with insurance companies, they're used to waiting for six, eight months for that money to come in. And about four months ago, they just had a complete gap. I know in the state of Nevada, dental wasn't allowed to see patients for months, for months. And so they had, you know, big gap there. And that's going to, that's going to last. It depends on how well reserved those physicians are as to whether they're going to be able to survive in their current practices or 
maybe they'll have to go start working with some of the national dental companies instead of being on their own. That's an interesting distinction in the healthcare market. You know, just knowing what we've gone through in the past 18 months, you assume all medical practices have been gangbusters, but it sounds like that's not exactly the case. Exactly. And frankly, look at the real estate industry, depending on the state that you were in. Some real estate uh, professionals were considered essential services and others were told to stay home. And so what is the ramification on our industry as a whole as to getting new professionals coming into the business, getting employees to come and work at our companies? Um, Will some of the big companies start leaning out and letting people go? I've seen some of that in our own market. And on the flip side of the coin, well, some of these folks that have had just a devastating year because they weren't allowed to work, go out and get a real job, <laughs> you know, where you get a salary and you get benefits instead of taking the risk of being an independent contractor, because it's been a tough year because as hot as this market is now, you know, COVID really slowed us down, but the market all the way across the country is just hotter than hot, but there's very low um, inventory. And when there's low inventory, there's, you know, multiple people chasing one building and only one person gets it, which means only one person gets a check. So you've it low inventory means it's hard to make a living. It's good to be the landlord. <laughs> Speaking of stability, that's that's always kind of the goal for everybody in, in certain respects. Um, and you mentioned kind of the ups and downs that everybody's gone through. Um being in Las Vegas, I'm sure you've had a front row seat to the difficulties faced by the tourism and hospitality. Um, you know, if, from your view, how has the city responded? And, you know, have you seen kind of the realization of the pent up demand that so many have, have talked about? You know, it's funny. The um, There's three phases of what's gone on with the gaming industry in Las Vegas. Uh, much of it very political you know, coming from the governor's office to the mayor's offices locally as far as who could be open and who couldn't be open. But when they closed the hotel casinos, what that did is it closed all the hotels in the state of Nevada. So if you wanted to continue doing business, you were either going to have to rent a room inside someone's home or you were going to have to drive back to the state that you came from in the same day because there was nowhere to sleep. And so it was really uh, an issue as the hotels are opening. And I'm sure you can imagine uh, you open these big behemoths that have three, 5,000 rooms, things like that. The amount of employees that they need to operate five, 6,000 employees is really daunting because when you think they've been out of work for eight, nine months, everybody has to be retrained. So they have to be rehired, retrained and put back to work. And with the hotels in Vegas, most people didn't realize for the first six months or so, those hotels were only open for three and four days a week. They were shutting down in the middle of the week because they were weekend tenants, drive-in tenants, basically coming from California, Arizona, Nevada, Utah. And so with that being said, until the... um Convention trade really started coming back alive and it did start for us in June. The convention trades are really what drives the midweek business. And that's what keeps not only the hotels open, 
but also the restaurants. And so they're experiencing the same issues that everywhere in the country is as far as getting employees to want to come back to work. Uh, in the middle of all of this, Resort World has opened their brand new 5,000 room hotel. It opened a couple of weeks ago. First big one to open on the strip and it's absolutely extraordinary. But they hired up a lot of the really good employees um, up and down the strip. And so now the other hotels that they had worked at are reopening and there's a lot of competition. They're paying signing bonuses and all kinds of stuff, you know, guaranteed hours. And you see that in every industry. I think as far as an industry goes, uh, the hotel industry in Vegas will do well, but it's probably going to be... Uh, another year. So it'll be sometime into 22, maybe even 23, that you'll see their stock pricing stabilize up. And you'll see the kind of occupancy we were, we were having well above 90% with all of those rooms that we have, um, even during the week. And if you think about when the shutdown happened, we were having the best year that Nevada hotels had ever had. And it just stopped. I think the knee-jerk reaction for Nevada will be the political one that's going to hit now. And, and you know, we, we had that horrible situation that happened October 1st a few years ago. And so, you know, that's still in everybody's mind. We did open up Raiders Stadium. We just have to retrain the Raiders and teach them how to win. And uh, then also one thing that you may or may not have noticed, the major hotels and MGM being the largest gaming uh, company in the world, they started selling several of their hotels on sale leasebacks. And including the biggest announcement happened last week with the uh, city center where they sold two of their uh, large hotels there and did a long-term sale leaseback that'll close before the end of the year. And the fact that companies like Blackstone, the big REITs are willing to put that type of debt out and uh, equity to purchase those and do those leases shows you the belief is that we're coming back where there's no doubt about it. They wouldn't put those kinds of billions of dollars into our economy. Well, great. And as a final question, you've been uh, an instructor with CSAM Institute since 2003. Um, and, you know, as a, uh, you know, a leading figure in the industry, you know, why is it important to you to be involved in the industry and in the, the classroom, whether it be in person or virtual? You know, it, it's funny that you ask that. You know, part of it is I'm a salesman, right? And so I love to teach people what I know how to do. But it also makes me better at what I do because I am a practitioner. I own a real estate company. This is what I do for a living. I do leasing and selling. And so with that said, I learn from my students as much as they learn from me. But also the concepts that we teach in CCIM, there's so many of them that many times you forget what you know. And so in teaching people in the classroom, and the experience level is just absolutely—it's mind blowing. Our students and and how accomplished that they are, and to have those people and not only be their resource, but to have those folks be a resource for me when I have certain types of clients that I can refer to, 
or question them, or hopefully they're in the lending industry and my clients can borrow money, that type of thing. It has really enhanced my business. And I just, you know, it's funny. It's when you're a salesman, what do we always say we love to do? We love to talk. And sometimes it's hard to just stop, right? So it gives me another avenue to go out and talk. <laughs> yeah, and and uh, and CCIM has, has certainly been lucky to have you for eighteen years, and, oh, thank and you. Uh, hope to have you for many more. Thank you, I appreciate that. I, I'm I'm glad to be back in the classroom. We um, started going live a couple of months ago, so it's really been fun. Zoom is terrific, and it's a great uh, alternative to being able to teach live. and And the institute did a phenomenal job last year in. Um, flipping the page and being able to get us onto the Zoom platform. But boy, to be back in the classroom, the students love it. Your instructors love it. So it's just, it's fun. Yeah. You know, for an industry that's based on communication and shaking hands, it's good to know that there's a future where hopefully we can get back to meeting people, you know, face to face. You bet. Well, Susie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And I thank you. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of Commercial Investment Real Estate Podcast. Head to SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Join us next month for a brand new episode of Commercial Investment Real Estate Podcast, featuring another leading figure from the world of commercial real estate.